Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. Gilbert Sr. was the founder of a hedge fund worth multi-millions of dollars. He was well-known on Wall Street, and he turned 70 years old on New Year's Day in 2015. He led a very active lifestyle and would go play tennis at the country club very frequently. On January 3rd, 2015, his wife Shelly opened the door to their son Tommy. Tommy had a duffel bag with him. And his relationship with his parents had been pretty strained, and they actually hadn't seen him for about five months. Tommy asked if his younger sister, Bess, was home, but Shelly replied that she was at church. So Tommy mentioned to his mom that he was hungry, and he asked her to go to the store and get him a sandwich and a Coke. And he said, you know, come back in an hour so that I can have time alone with my dad. Now, Tommy Jr., who I'm going to refer to him as Tommy, and I'm going to refer to his dad as Thomas or Thomas Sr. because they have the same name. So it does get a little bit confusing. Now, Tommy Jr. was raised in this immensely wealthy lifestyle. He grew up in a mansion. He went to really good private schools. He was athletic. He has an IQ of 140 And he speaks multiple languages, including Mandarin Chinese. He was also known for his, quote, movie star good looks. And to me, he kind of looks like the blonde guy from Game of Thrones, the really handsome, like, Cersei's brother, uh, Jamie Lannister character. Yeah, like, he's got that. that, I do think he looks like that. That golden hair, you know. Um, And he was also nicknamed the modern Jay Gatsby. So, you know, we're kind of getting this picture of a lifestyle that is very different from ours for sure and from a lot of people. He did have a lot going for him, but he did have a little bit of a past. He had some drug abuse and some psychiatric illnesses and major social anxiety. And we're going to get into a lot of what has happened to Tommy He graduated from Princeton University and he, you know, expected his career to take off, but it really didn't. And he actually ended up working as a bartender and gave swim lessons to kids for money. And like, that's the kind of thing that my friends have done as teenagers is give swim lessons for money. Or like, you're kind of, you're doing that type of stuff as you're in school, like even in college and stuff, but like, this is a Princeton-educated man who has just finished school. Mm-hmm. and Lots of expectations and connections. Yes. You know, yes. wealth does yes. open up a lot of doors. So Yes. So it's an interesting choice for him for sure. Now, by the age of 30, Tommy Jr. was supported by his father, who paid for his rent and also gave him an $800 a week allowance. His dad also paid for his car, his country club memberships, and other expenses. So he's paying for all of that plus giving... Plus the allowance, yeah. Plus the allowance. By the end of 2014, Thomas Sr.'s businesses were not actually doing as well as they had been. And he had actually reduced Tommy's allowance from $800 to $300 a week, which... That's a significant difference. It is still money coming in, but it is significantly smaller amount. Yeah. Now, Shelly knew that Tommy Jr. was unhappy about the allowance being cut. And she really had like that uneasy feeling leaving them alone, Tommy and his dad, on that day. So when she came back into the house, she found her husband lying dead on the floor with a gun in his hand. 
Now we're going to go into some background on the family here. The Gilbert family could trace their lineage back to Robert Treat, who was the founder of Newark, New Jersey. So this is very old money, very well-to-do, high-class, high society. Yep. In 1980, Shelley met Thomas Sr. at a charity benefit. They began dating, and it was this instant, I love you, where have you been all these years? He actually said that to her. So yeah, it was very much that sort of storybook coming together. Yeah, they had a really good connection and like a very sweet relationship. Yes. Thomas Sr. was known as a refined college student. He also played on the Princeton soccer team and he majored in public and international affairs. He became a member of the Jamesburg Reformatory Program, which helped juvenile delinquents. So, you know, these people are very wealthy, but they're also philanthropists. They're doing good things. Trying to give back to the community. And I think that a lot of times we equate like wealth and being rich with kind of a selfishness. But Thomas Sr. like really did a lot of work for people who did not have as much as he did. Now, he found work after graduation on Wall Street, and after just a few months of dating Shelley, he proposed, and they were married on September 26th, 1981. The New York Times style section covered the wedding. So again, very big yes, deal. Very big. <laughs> they moved into a, quote, small mansion. Just a small one. T- <laughs> just a small mansion in Tuxedo Park. I don't know what a small mansion is, honestly. I picture it being like eight times the size of my house. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, I can't even imagine. That's a small mansion. <laughs> and that small mansion was 40 miles north of Manhattan. They became members of the River Club. So there's like all kinds of these country clubs. Yes. All types of these, you know, cigar joints where you're sitting in those leather chairs and you're chatting with your old Princeton buddies. Mm-hmm. It is very much everything that you think it is. I picture, you know, the movie Some Like It Hot. Yes. The, yes. The, like, man that ends up. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very much that He's lifestyle, like, oh, that yacht. Nobody's yes. perfect. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you haven't watched Some Like It Hot, great old oh movie. Oh, my gosh. Watch please it. do. It's so good. On July 13th, 1984, Thomas Gilbert Jr. was born. And from very early on, he was very bright. He wanted to learn things. You know, he was just a very active, engaged child. Yeah. Uh, IQ of 140 shows up pretty yep. early on. Yep. Shelly recalled that her husband and son would play together and wrestle. They had a very positive father-son relationship. It was a very happy family dynamic. In 1989, the family moved into New York City proper. And... Of course, they had to try to get him into a very fancy nursery school. So Thomas Jr. had to take a lot of assessments and interviews, and he scored near perfect. They ended up paying tuition for nursery school of $30,000 a year. And that's in in 1989. So if the tuition was $30,000 a year then, I don't even want to know how much it is now. Now, Thomas became friends very early on with someone who we will call Bart Hayes. We're choosing to call him by his pseudonym that he is identified by in the book Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elite by John Glatt, which is our primary source for this episode. And it's a really good book. It's probably one of the easiest true crime books I've read. And I really liked the way that he presented this information. Bart and Tommy would continue to be friends all through high school. Bart later said of young Tommy, he was a little bit quiet, but certainly had a goofy sense of humor. He was fun. And around this time, Shelly gave birth to a daughter, Bess. So at this point, they're well-to-do family, they're philanthropists, they're going to the country clubs, they have two kids, they have this appearance of the perfect, typical American family. Yes. Yes. Which, if there's anything we know in the true crime world... And nothing is as it seems. Those appearances <laughs> yes. are not accurate. The happier you seem on the outside, the more foreboding it is. Something's brewing. <laughs> Tommy Jr. went to NASA's space camp and decided that he wanted to become an astronaut when he got older. But his father really wanted him to follow in his career footsteps and made that an expectation pretty early on. And I feel like that's 
pretty common in not even just wealthy people's lifestyles, but like any parent will talk about how, oh, you could work with me. You could take over this business, you know. It's true. My three-year-old wants to be a podcaster. So. Yeah. He, I mean, pretty soon he's going to be on Bath and Body Parts. So. <laughs> In 1993, the family moved to Park Avenue, which is about two blocks away from Central Park. And they had also been accepted to the Maidstone Club of East Hampton, which is one of the most prestigious clubs that you could get into. Their 18-hole golf course is immaculate. And this became this summer retreat for the New York elite. You know, you kind of always hear about New Yorkers going to the Hamptons. There's almost like in the Hamptons, a subcategory of like even more wealthy people that are in this extra fancy extra extra and they fell into that category so the gilberts bought a home near there for the summers and this home was thirty-eight thousand square feet it had a private beach you know very nice and the homes in this area never really come up for sale because they're usually just passed down from one generation to the next. So they got very lucky buying this property. Now, Tommy Jr. was 10 years old, and this was very formative for him because every summer he got to go here and he became a strong swimmer and a surfer, and he even competed in children's tennis tournaments. So that athleticism is really being nurtured in this environment. He continued to attend his private school for junior high. He was a star athlete. And, you know, he also kind of got a reputation for being more of like a daredevil and taking more risks. And he would kind of land in trouble for making jokes in class. You know, nothing too severe, but just kind of starting to be a little more risky in his behavior at school. So Tommy met a boy named Peter Smith Jr. And their parents all kind of knew each other. Peter Smith is a very integral part of this case because he is going to continue to know Tommy throughout his life. Throughout high school, Tommy really excelled. He was on student council. He was doing all of those athletic events. He got good grades. And he was really seen as a golden boy. You know, that was kind of what everyone wants their son to be. But inside, Tommy was starting to develop social anxiety. He told a psychiatrist years later that when he was in the sixth grade, he started to feel, quote, not like myself. And he also started having dreams of him and his father physically fighting one another. I'm going to get a lot further into that and how that plays out a little bit later on. But just to point out that that is right around the age where mood disorders, personality disorders, things like that do typically start to exhibit signs. Yes. And, you know, he really started not wanting to play tennis and he didn't really want to do a lot of more extracurricular activities at school, even though his dad really encouraged him to. So that kind of starts this tension between the two of them. And Shelly said that both her husband and her son were alpha males and that they kind of competed to be the alpha of the family. And we start to see that type of tension dynamic between the two of them more and more and more. Now, Tommy was in the same class with a man named Nick McDonald who wrote the book 12 based on his experience at Buckley Private School. And this book talked about the sex and drugs among the elite young teens of New York. And it kind of, you know, everybody was like, oh no, this is not happening. Like that, that can't possibly be. Everyone's in denial about this, but Nick McDonald's like, no, this is how it happens. And I mean, you know, if you were to hear that about children that were not elite, like teenagers that are just regular teenagers, nobody's going to think twice about it. Right. But, But it's not completely different teenagers that are like yeah they're all teenagers they all have hormones there and I would say even more so yes and they have a bunch of like added pressures they're almost taught that their consequences don't exist they have extra pressures they have exposure that sometimes people don't have money to get drugs I mean yes the finances I mean that opens up a lot of opportunity and so by seventh grade Tommy had started drinking alcohol and smoking pot. 
And he would claim later that he lived an even wilder life than Nick McDonald talked about in the book. Like it was even worse than the book said. But Tommy's dad called the Buckley principal after a school camping trip because he had heard rumors of boys smoking pot. And Tommy Jr. was furious that his dad had called and was afraid that his friends would think that he had ratted them out to his dad, although he hadn't. And of course, it's so embarrassing when you're in junior high and your parents are, you know, getting involved with anything that you and your friends have done. Like, it's so embarrassing, even for not rich people, right? Like it's just, and it's such an awkward time in your life and you're learning more about yourself. And so that was just not a good situation. And then, you know, the pot is one thing, not that I think you should condone your seventh grade children smoking pot necessarily, (laughs) but in ninth grade, I think this behavior starts escalating to some more dangerous things. Tommy starts experimenting with vandalism and even bullying. He even snuck fireworks and set them off in the Hamptons with other boys. And when confronted, Tommy's parents said that they did not think he had done it. So we're seeing a few things here. We're seeing sort of escalating behavior, dangerous things. These could potentially have much worse consequences in setting a fire and hurting other people. And we see his parents denying his behavior. Yes, yes. In June of 2000, Tommy graduated ninth grade from Buckley and was admitted to Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, which is a well-to-do boarding school. The summer before going, he worked as a busboy in the Hamptons. A Buckley classmate asked if he could stay with Tommy for a few days, and Tommy did not like this classmate, but like all boys of his age, he really did want to fit in, and he thought it was better to let him stay then for this rumor to kind of get started that he'd snubbed him. He didn't want... You don't want that to be your first introduction to a new school, for sure. Exactly. Now, Tommy, interestingly, would later say that he, quote, caught depression from this classmate and would later blame him for being the catalyst to his mental decline. Now, obviously, that's not how any of that works. Yes. But it is so interesting to examine how he always feels like there is some someone or some reason that he can pinpoint for how his brain functions. It's very interesting. Fall of 2000 was Tommy's sophomore year at Deerfield Academy. Tuition and boarding costs came to about And Deerfield was very focused on athletics. Tommy competed in basketball, baseball, football, and cross country. He also studied Chinese and pre-cal. So again, very high academic. Yes. Lots of pressures here at the school. He would call his parents nightly at 10.30 p.m. and update them about his day, which feels very late and excessive to me. Yes. But... I also talked to my dad on the phone all the time. Sure, so, sure. Tommy was described by a peer as the definition of what girls liked. So there was a lot of interest in Tommy. Yes. He's very good Smart, looking. He's athletic. Good at he's sports. wealthy. Yep. But peers couldn't really recall Tommy actually dating anybody during this time. In the yearbook, students were asked what they saw themselves doing in 20 years, and Tommy responded, quote, living in a van down by the river. And that's so interesting to me. You're at this academy, and I'm sure the other answers were probably like, you know, running a business, being on Wall Street, being famous, you know, whatever career path, but like... And you're busting out an SNL quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, okay, okay. You're pulling a Chris Farley here in a very serious situation. <laughs> In his junior year, Tommy was rooming with a new roommate, Bob. They had a very small dorm room, and Tommy started feeling like Bob was, quote, contaminating him. And he said that this was a very traumatic experience. So again, we see this antisocial, odd situation where he's in close quarters with somebody, and he comes out and says, they're the reason why this mental state is happening to me. This is the reason. This is the person that has done this to me. In January of 2002, Tommy joined Big Brothers Big Sisters and mentored an eight-year-old boy. And he really enjoyed this. And I feel like that's a really good program. You know, anything that allows people to help 
children who don't have a lot of good influence in their lives. It is a really good program. And he really did enjoy it. And like later we see, you know, he's giving swim lessons to kids. Like he was a good teacher. He he worked well with children. It's very, very interesting. Now in the summer vacation after junior year, Tommy traveled to China to polish up his language skills. Which can you just imagine? <laughs> oh my gosh, right? To travel to China to polish yes. up my language skills. Oh, I'm just going to go. Such a different world than most a of us grew up in. A much different world much different. But it seems like it's very common for people in this situation. Like they travel all the time for various reasons. And honestly, if I had expendable money, yes, I would totally do that. Oh, yes. I'm sure it's like like a really great experience, especially you're in high school. And if you're good at learning languages, you immerse yourself in that culture. You know, I can just imagine that that was Yeah, there are really great things about exposing your teenage child to other cultures and languages yes. and I would 100% be on yes. board with that. So I'm not I'm not mocking the wealthy there. It's just no, such no, a disconnect so from different. the reality that most <laughs> of us live in. And his mom recalls that around this time she and her husband started feeling like Tommy just wasn't acting like himself. And his friends said they started noticing a change in his mannerisms and even in his speech patterns. He would almost stop a sentence in the middle and then go back and totally start it over, but multiple times, like not just, oh, I forgot my train of thought. People were noticing that things were a little bit different. In his own words, Tommy said that he felt like an outsider in his own life at this time. And that is very interesting because I feel like it might be more common, especially like you're in high school, but no one talks about it, you know? Yeah. And with college looming around the corner, you know, Thomas Sr. wanted Tommy to go to Princeton like he had, you know, that legacy carrying on with the the college that your parents went to. And in his application, Tommy wrote about how he was glad that he had actually overcome his depression. And again, that's not really how depression works. Sure. Um, as somebody who has been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Yes. Yes. You know, I once had a therapist tell me that sometimes depression is like a cloud and yes. like sometimes you shrink it down like a little ball you carry in your pocket, but it's not yes. going to go away. You don't yes. overcome it in the sense that it goes away. You can just right. learn management skills. But yes. also he had not really learned management skills or gotten any kind of right. long-term cohesive treatment. This was just his application. This is just him kind of you know, making himself sound even better than, you know, sounding good on paper. Because in actuality, at this time, he started believing that his friends were trying to, quote, steal his soul. And so he would practice rituals to keep himself safe. And he also believed that every piece of clothing that he owned was contaminated by bugs. And when I read that, I just started itching. Like, I just, ugh. But thinking that you have bugs all over your clothes, like, that is, there's no peace in your mind. No. You know? And you're thinking that your friends are trying to steal your soul and you're carrying around like talismans to protect yourself. We're seeing this mental state escalate. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Now, when Tommy was 19, he was staying in the Hamptons and he met a girl named Lila Chase. Now, she's actually the niece of Chevy Chase, the famous actor. And, you know, he's 19 and it would be four years until he and Lila would meet again. But she is also a very integral part of this case. Tommy easily got accepted into Princeton. He had lots of recommendation letters. His uncle had even offered to cover his tuition. There was no doubt that he was going to get in anyway. So he just kind of easily got accepted. Right. Tommy told his dad that when it was time to move in to Princeton, he only wanted his mom to be with him. But his dad insisted on going anyway. And they pulled over to get gas near the JFK airport. 
And Tommy had an episode in the car. He started crying and saying that everything was contaminated now. And all of the things that he had that he was bringing to Princeton were all contaminated because of this stop at the gas station that they had taken. When he was at Princeton, Tommy was convinced that his old Deerfield roommate, Bob, was actually still contaminating him, even though Bob did not attend Princeton. He just felt like even though he wasn't there, he was still having an influence on him in a very negative way. During his freshman year, Tommy asked his parents if he could transfer to Duke University, but they did not allow it. And this is the time that Tommy starts doing more drugs like LSD. And he also started taking steroids to become a better athlete. He was actually put on academic probation when drug paraphernalia was found in his dorm. Due to this, due to him being put on academic probation, his parents reached out to a psychiatrist to try and treat their son. So in October of 2004, Tommy had his first session with Dr. Kevin Spicer. And I think it's very telling there that he has this breakdown in the car on the way to college saying that everything he has is contaminated. He wants to change schools. He thinks his old Deerfield roommate is contaminating him. And the parents are like... Uh, it's probably fine. But then he gets put on academic probation because of drugs. They're like, well, now we need treatment. That's what did it. It's very, very interesting. Of course, we are looking in with hindsight. And I think that as a parent, you always want to believe that your child is totally normal and fine and has nothing wrong. So I understand that level of denial and kind of overlooking. But I I just do think it's very interesting that that was the catalyst. Yes. Yes. And it, you know, I am glad that they did reach out to someone. Absolutely. Now, Tommy told Spicer, his psychiatrist, that people were contaminating him, killing his thoughts. And he said he knew this sounded crazy. But when you're in that mental state, you can know that it sounds crazy, but you still feel it to be true. You still really believe it. Yep. Dr. Spicer diagnosed him with a depressive disorder and possible psychosis. Four days later, he saw him again and prescribed him the antipsychotic drug Risperdal. Spicer also told Tommy's parents that he should be institutionalized immediately. So Spicer sees this is yes, this a is serious. Big deal. This is serious. Yes. But his parents just said, "Well, Tommy will never agree to that." Yep. Again, I don't know that Tommy has the capacity at this point to not agree to that. Yes. But I also understand the parents' perspective and again hoping that this is just a phase, hoping that this is just something that will go away, hoping it's not a big enough deal to elicit an institutionalization. Tommy did continue seeing Dr. Spicer, and late that November, he had a panic attack in the office. He said that he hadn't had any social interaction in weeks. Now, mid-December, Dr. Spicer diagnosed him with possible schizophrenia and changed his medication to Zoloft and Geodon. Tommy's parents did not want to accept this diagnosis. And I feel like there's such a stigma around the diagnosis of schizophrenia because I feel like your first, you know, my brain goes to like someone very spastic, someone like your traditional, you know, schizophrenic person in a movie is going to be the crazy one, right? Like nobody wants that label. Yeah. The, you know, when I think of how it's portrayed in the media on TV, I picture like a homeless person talking to themselves. They're completely gone. Yes. But the problem is that any type of disorders like that are on a spectrum. Yes. And can be managed, right? Yes. That image of somebody is somebody who didn't get support. They didn't get help along yes. the way. Yes. In February of 2005, Tommy called 911 with overwhelming suicidal thoughts. A doctor wanted to admit him for observation, but he walked out without treatment. Can't force him to stay, you know. That April, Tommy told his parents that he was going to Hawaii for a surfing trip and that it would be good for his mental health. But the rest of the year, Tommy did not receive any treatment for his mental health. He would just travel the world to surf with his parents paying for everything, which, you know, I can actually see why going to Hawaii and being yes. outside and in the fresh air and surfing yes. would be and good for your mental health. And something that he really likes to do, you yes. know, 
definitely. But I think it's something that like can help you if you have some mild to moderate depression. Yes. Not when you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia and possible psychosis and you really need to be in active treatment. Yes. And you're using this surfing as your only form of therapy, your only form of help. Right. That would be at that point, something that needs to be supplemental to additional, some other treatment plan. In fall of 2006, Tommy went back to Princeton. His parents thought that this was wonderful, and he saw a new psychiatrist there, Dr. Les Linnett. Dr. Linnett diagnosed Tommy with ADD, ADHD, Tourette's, OCD, and possible Lyme disease, which seems a little bit random. It's so random and also so many things right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, lots and lots of stuff. And... You know, that's in addition to these other diagnoses that he's gotten. Sometimes you'll get a different diagnosis from a different psychiatrist. And a lot of symptoms overlap in terms of of mood disorders. So yes, for sure. Psychiatry and psychology are very powerful sciences, but there is some subjectivity and some overlap. And we learn more and more and more as time goes on. Yes, for sure. Lyme disease, I can't really speak to here. Yeah, Um, I don't know much about that. Just that there's a lot of woo around Lyme disease. Yes. But I don't really know what the circumstances were around his Lyme disease diagnosis. (laughs) But Dr. Lennett prescribed Lexapro, Clonopin, and Risperdal. So it's getting kind of a cocktail of medication, but medication is a really important and wonderful thing in terms of mental health. Yes. Dr. Linnett recommended he be moved to a single room. Tommy told Linnett to clarify with the university that he was still able to play on the football team. And it's like, that was what was important to him. You know, he was like, just please make it so that they're not going to kick me off the team, you know? Yeah. Now, on May 6th, 2007, Tommy began a three-day binge of cocaine and mushrooms And three days later, he called 911 saying that he was overdosing on cocaine. And that's so scary. So an ambulance came and treated him. And he said that he had snorted four grams of cocaine and eaten 10 psychedelic mushrooms. I don't know what the normal amount is that, like, I don't know. I don't know anything about all that, but I know that that is a lot is what I know. Yeah. And anytime you're mixing recreational drugs, not good. Not good. So he was taken to the hospital and, you know, he was also arrested because these are illegal drugs. And the following day, he had to be placed in restraints because he became violent and headbutted a nurse. So he was given probation and he was told that he had to attend an intervention program charges were dropped for his violent behavior and for the drugs about 15 months later. He went back to the Maidstone Club in the Hamptons and Tommy met Lila Chase again. And it had been four years since they had first met. They went to a few events together in groups and during Labor Day weekend before returning to New York, he asked her for her number. So they went on several dates And Lila said that he opened up to her about never really having girlfriends, which surprised her because he was so handsome. Tommy really took a liking to Lila and even introduced her to his parents. They felt like having this stable girlfriend was really good for Tommy's mental state. Throughout the relationship, Tommy said that he felt like he could actually be himself around her. He told her about his fear of contamination And she opened up to him about her history with depression and that she had also attempted suicide at the age of 19. So they're kind of doing a little bit of trauma bonding. They're sharing these things about themselves that they're not really sharing with a lot of other people. And they're becoming extremely close because of this. And that's a really powerful bond. Yes. You know, it really roots people together. Yes. Now, Lila began to notice that Tommy smoked a lot of marijuana. And I told her that he smoked marijuana every day and that he was high, quote, most of the time. Lila introduced Tommy to her family and her friends and everyone told her, like, you hit the jackpot. Everyone is rooting for this relationship. It seems like on paper, they've got everything going for them, you know? Yeah, obviously, we don't know what information everyone is privy to. And she's not going and telling people, hey, Tommy thinks everyone is contaminating him. Right, right. But I do feel like 
there's a fair chance that Tommy's not exhibiting perfectly sure. socially normal behavior when well, he's around he's the family all and friends the time. and that they're just like you hit the jackpot because because he's wealthy he's and handsome. good looking and rich yep. and you know but of course people can put a positive foot forward in a lot of circumstances of course at the beginning of December 2006, Dr. Lisnet had a session with Tommy. Tommy said he did not want to spend the holidays with his parents because they were contaminated. And he also said that various SNL sketches were making fun of him and he wanted to sue NBC. And Lila's uncle Chevy Chase was on the show at the time and Lila reassured him that nothing about the show was targeted at him. And you know... Because why would it be? <laughs> yes, I do think that sometimes... Especially at this time, SNL would kind of joke about things that I don't necessarily think should have been joked about. And so I feel like they've had some sketches about mental health things that maybe they didn't handle in the best possible way. But he felt like they were really aimed towards him because he thought that Chevy Chase was influencing the writers of SNL because he didn't like him. You know, he thought it was like a personal thing. And so it does seem a bit off the wall that you would think SNL is writing sketches about you, but he does have this connection. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I do agree. I think that in 2006, 2007, 2008, like I'm remembering back to that time, our understanding of mental health, the stigma of mental health and the way that mental health is viewed is so different now than it was at the time. And we still have a long way to go, but it is definitely much better now than it was. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In January of 2008, Tommy went to Jamaica for a surfing trip, but forgot his meds. Lila flew out four days later and she said he was in a bad state. He was extremely paranoid about everything. And Lila said she was determined to find him a better doctor. And so for the next six years, Tommy went to see Dr. Michael Sachs. Now, Sachs prescribed more meds, but Tommy did not take any of them. He said that they affected his sexual performance, which is very common side effect from very real mood stabilizers and these antidepressant drugs and SSRIs and all of these things. And, you know, this is the first time that Tommy's in this serious, stable relationship. Yes. And you can see why he's wanting to prioritize that and concerned about those side effects. Tommy told Dr. Sachs that sometimes he would look in the mirror and see his father's face. And he also said that his dad had, quote, jinxed him and that people were using magnets to try and, quote, steal his spirit. There's a lot there. There's There's a a lot lot there. He's off his meds. He's clearly escalating. In spring of 2008, Tommy was kicked off the Princeton football team for using steroids. And around this time, Lila is becoming more and more worried about his drug use. Now, he's always been a heavy drug user since she's met him, but this is really escalating. And finally, she gave him an ultimatum, drugs or her. And this seemed to work. Tommy showed her a bag of what he said was thousands of dollars worth of cocaine and flushed it down the toilet in front of her. And I mean, if I was Lila, I would be like, that's huge. That I mean, he's picking me. Exactly. And this really did help their relationship. Tommy actually moved in with Lila, who lived with her parents in Bronxville, New York. Lila said that Tommy knew that he had to not do drugs to live at home with her family. And so she's thinking, really, like, this is a good situation. He's picked her. He's cleaning up for her. Both of Lila's parents practice law. And so they were concerned with the legality of the drugs and everything. Yes. But they really did accept Tommy as part of the family. And things seemed to be going pretty well at this time for Lila and Tommy. Lila and Tommy were seeing a Broadway play on November 4th, 2008, when it was announced that Obama had won the election, which I think most of us can remember that moment, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. And I do remember having so much celebration in the dorms and people were so happy and they had that moment. They were ecstatic. I was, I was not living here at that time. I was living in a much more conservative town and it was the opposite reaction. So it was very, I mean, there were a lot of tears shed that night. We were very interesting to observe. Anytime there's an election, there are going to be strong reactions because obviously you think either the world's going to fall apart or something amazing is going to happen. But I do think that particularly with the Obama election, that was a really big pivotal point in terms of 
I don't even know how to say it. Like people really believed that change was coming. So Obama supporters believed that he was very different than anyone had come before and that everything was going to change. This was very big. And I think, you know, Lila and, and Tommy felt that. So they were very happy. And they believed that they were going to get married and and stay together and that this was going to be a progression that was going to be very positive for both of them. Lila would spend every January to April in Florida working as a horse trainer and dressage rider. So it's like very fancy horse work. She's very good in that equestrian lifestyle that I don't know much about at all, but I know it requires a lot of work. The only thing I know about dressage is that Stephen Colbert was once talking about dressage and he was pretending to be a horse. So anytime (laughs) I hear the word dressage, that's what I picture. That's awesome. Tommy rode down with her and would stay for a while. And one winter she was hospitalized for pneumonia which is really scary. I feel like as an adult, that doesn't happen yes. super often. And he drove nonstop for 24 hours to be with her. In spring of 2009, Tommy told Dr. Sachs that he felt pressured by Lila's family to marry her. And around this time, he actually started doing drugs again, and they began drifting apart. And they did end up stopping their romantic relationship, but they remained good friends, and he still lived in their house. And it's very interesting to me because they really do maintain a friendship from this point on, which I think would be pretty hard to do, but he's even still living with her. And, you know, he had the money to live elsewhere. So it's just, it's very interesting choice in my mind. Yeah. Well, and I think that Lila, she really wants Tommy to change and she really believes that he can be a better person and she holds on to that. Yes, for sure. In June 2009, Tommy graduated Princeton with an economics degree. He and Lila actually moved into an apartment together in Riverdale, New York. And he started an internship, but he was fired for playing video games instead of working. (laughs) So after a few months, like they decided to move back in with her family. On July 13th, 2009, Tommy turned 25 which made him old enough to be part of the Maidstone Club on the family membership. So his parents agreed to have his own membership for $3,000 a year with $600 extra for golfing with the pros. And in early 2010, Thomas Gilbert Sr. downsized his home. The 2008 recession had hit his business just like everyone. And he was trying to save money. And by downsizing their home, I mean, they're still living in a really nice place. Yeah. He moved to an even smaller mansion. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And so Tommy and Lila actually moved to Florida with another couple. Tommy would stay home all day and surf and get high while Lila was working with the horses. And this caused a lot of tension between the two of them. Shortly after this, Lila was actually offered a job in Europe training horses, and she took it. She would still Skype with Tommy, and they would remain close during this time. With her gone, though, Tommy didn't really want to live by himself, and he went back to live with his parents. He spent most of his time at the Maidstone Club and surfing, and when his dad would kind of try and offer career advice, he would react with anger. In mid-May of 2010, Tommy began weekly therapy sessions with Dr. Susan Evans. Dr. Sachs had actually referred him to her. Tommy's mental state was deteriorating and his focus had moved from contamination to embarrassment. He said that he wanted to make friends, but that people would look at him like he was a loser. Tommy told Dr. Evans that he was actually interested in acting, so she encouraged him to take acting lessons, but also to focus on finding a job. Now, in September of 2011, Tommy ran into one of his primary school friends, Peter Smith, on the beach, and they caught up. They're talking about their lives, and Tommy mentioned that his relationship with his dad was especially hard because he was living at home again. And Peter said, hey, you know what? I have an extra room. Like, you can move in here. Tommy moved in a week later, and his dad agreed to pay his share of the rent. And 
Peter was very social, well-liked, fashionable, good-looking, engaged. He has a lot of friends. Yeah. And he decided that it was his mission to help Tommy. Now, this is his friend, and he wants to bring him into that circle and and help him get on his feet. Yeah. And he starts taking him around a social circle, and Tommy brightens up a lot at this time. And Peter said that he thought that this was the happiest time of his life, going to Hamptons on the weekends, playing sports, meeting social elites. Yep. It sounds like a good, they got a good thing going right there. Yeah. Peter even found Tommy a job as a barman at Dorian's Red Hand Bar. But Tommy didn't last very long there. It got very busy, and he just could not keep up. In January of 2012, Peter invited Tommy to a surfing trip in the Dominican Republic. But Tommy didn't really seem to enjoy this trip. He actually told Peter that he would be moving out because he wanted to travel the world but couldn't afford rent. Which is interesting because his parents are paying the rent. Right, right. He's just coming up with the reason to leave, you know. He moved back in with his parents for a time, but a few months later, he asked Peter if he could move back in, and he did. And soon after this, Tommy told Lila Chase that he thought Peter was trying to hack into his computer files. He even told Dr. Evans that he had considered purchasing a gun. Woo! That's a red flag right there. escalating a lot. Yes. Tommy told Dr. Sachs that he blamed Peter Smith for his misfortune because he believed that Peter had hacked his computer and stolen the algorithm for his burgeoning hedge fund. Again, it's like pinpointing things to certain people. Yes. Now, Tommy was still living with Peter, and Peter recalls that this time Tommy would not help around the apartment, and just things were really not going well. He even witnessed Tommy get very loud after having a fight with his dad and start slamming doors. Yeah, just not a good environment. Yeah. Around this time, Tommy started dating a girl named Lizzie, who he had met in the Hamptons, and Peter started seeing a girl named Laurel Cummings. And so they would all go out together on double dates, and they would make the socialite pages, get photographed, all that jazz. Lots of events. Lila Chase wasn't in touch with Tommy at this point, but she said that she could tell from the photos that he wasn't comfortable or happy in this entire situation. Tommy told Peter to invite Laurel to move in and that he would find a new place to live. But then in late July, he refused to move out, which caused tension. Finally, at the end of August, he did move out, but only after a physical altercation. Yeah, so just a really tense time between the two of them, for sure. Thomas, his dad, still wanted Tommy to become involved with his career at the hedge fund. So Tommy started working for him on paper, but he didn't actually do very much. Tommy was still seeing Lizzie, but he was kind of also seeing other women. One woman recalls that during one date, Tommy couldn't pay. And then when he took her to his house, he actually locked the car doors and told her that she had to spend the night with him. Now, this woman's sister actually had the same car. And she knew that if she put it in park, the automatic locks would be deactivated. So she did that and she ran out. But that's very scary. Yeah. And, you know, he saw a few other women. And one woman named Ariana commented that he had insisted on picking her up for a date. But then he got so wasted and she didn't have any transportation. So she kind of felt like a prisoner. Like she couldn't really get out. And this was before, you know, Lyft and Uber was really popular. In 2012, Tommy was in his late 20s and still fully financially dependent on his parents. They paid his rent and his car, and they also gave him about $74,000 a year. His mom would just kind of transfer money into his account whenever he asked. That is so much money to just give your child. Yes. In January of 2013, Shelly asked Tommy if he was going to come over to celebrate his dad's 68th birthday. And he said maybe and asked for some more money. Now, he moved into an apartment on the Upper East Side of New York, and in April, he said that he was back feeling depressed and suicidal and had even searched for how to obtain a gun. He did say that he did this mostly out of curiosity, and there was no follow-up on the side of his therapist. So he said, you know, I was looking at how to purchase the gun, but it's really just because I'm curious. And they said, okay. It's really hard as a therapist to know where the line is drawn, right? You can't 
break privilege unless there's a reason to believe that a specific crime yes. is going to be committed. And the rules around that are pretty strict. Yes. So I do not blame that. You know, unless he was actually threatening to take that gun and go. Yes. Kill somebody. Yep. Yeah. Now, Thomas Sr. was attempting to work on the relationship with his son. He would invite Tommy to play tennis at the club. He even set up a meeting for Tommy to meet with some portfolio advisors. And Tommy just didn't show up to that meeting. After a few months, Tommy asked his mom to tell his dad to stop texting him. In July, Tommy did show up to a business meeting with his dad, but he became so mad about the fact that his dad had moved chairs around in the conference room. Thomas Sr. emailed him afterwards and said that it was totally inadvertent on his part and that he would never intentionally hurt his son. He was not trying to upset him. He was just trying to set up the room for the meeting. Oh, I felt really bad for Thomas Sr. there. He's trying to yes. Yes. do the right thing for and sure. to try to like help his son. Yes. Mm. In July, Tommy did try to get closer to Peter Smith, who was having success in business. But Smith could tell that it was kind of coming from this place of jealousy. Like, you are succeeding in business. I want that too. Now, Tommy and Lizzie broke up that July and he became obsessed with the fact that she started seeing other people, even though he had been seeing other people the whole time. Yeah. And then he saw her with another man at a party and went wild. He actually hid in a closet to cool off. And while he was in there, another couple came into the room and began having sex. And he just stayed in the closet. <laughs> and when the man got up to go to the bathroom, he saw Tommy sneaking out. Oh, my gosh. Uh, bleh, that would be so awful. Yes. And now, as any reasonable person would be, the man was super freaked out by this and started telling yes. people. And this event made its way through the grapevine of the Hamptons. And everyone started wanting to avoid yep, Tommy. Don't. Don't do that. Just don't do don't that. Do that. That September, Peter Smith put together a poker night, but said not to tell Tommy. But of course, he heard about it and showed up anyway. And during the night, Peter's dog broke a wine glass and Peter grabbed him to pull him away. And Tommy started yelling about how he was abusing the dog. And this kind of escalated into an argument between them. And he yelled that Peter was the most violent person he had ever met. To which Peter replied, you're a loser. And... Tommy started telling people that Peter was violently abusive to his dog, and he threw a full can of soda at Peter's windshield. Now, Peter's dad heard about this and wanted to bring charges against Tommy for harassment, but ultimately he did not press charges. Thomas Singer ended up sending Peter a check for damages. Now, according to Peter, Tommy called him just a few days later and said, you should be worried. I am coming for you. And Soakers, that's where we're going to end today's episode. In our next episode, we'll hear about Tommy's alarming behavior and the circumstances that led to the murder of his dad. If you're a patron, you can go ahead and listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in with us next week to hear the rest of this tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath & Body Parts. Bye! Bye! body parts merch snag your shirts mugs fanny packs towels and more at bath and body parts podcast.com slash merch if you'd like to support the show and get access to vip perks like ad-free content early access to episodes and extra episodes each month along with special segments and exclusive merch including the bath and body parts bath bomb you can become a soaker super soaker or bath bomber on our patreon just visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to get started